thank, thank you very much for that, that warm welcome. Um, I, um, I've got a, um, the, the title for my talk is, um, it, it's, uh, remind me the title of my talk. The title of your talk is Primo Levi and the Nature of Guilt, I think. Primo Levi and the Nature of Guilt. This, this is um, a slightly uh, uh, narrowed presentation from the paper from, from which it's given. The I'll say a little bit about the paper and how I'm going to progress and then I'll, and then uh, get into it. Um, so the paper has two elements. Uh, one is, a, is, is important, but I'm not going to say too much about it here and now, and, and the other is what I'm going to talk about. So the element that I'm not going to talk about is uh, I've just started a project um, called Criminal Justice, the Blaming Relation, and uh, part of that is thinking through the, uh, a metaphysical standpoint from which it's possible to talk seriously about issues of guilt uh, in relation to the criminal law and other, probably other ethical issues related to that. And in that, in that part of the talk, I, I have an interest in um, the philosophy of uh, a philosopher called Roy Baskar, who has written about various things, his work on dialectics I've written on, um, but he also, in his he died last year, and in his later work, he developed a theory that he called meta-reality. And uh, I begin the paper by talking about the idea of meta-reality and the idea of a kind of metaphysical unity that underlies um, uh, issues in the in the existing world, in the actually existing world. Um, I think that's really going to be important to what I eventually want to say, and, and in, in fact it's already there implicitly because I'm going to be talking about the metaphysics of justice in relation to prim, Primo Levi and guilt. Um, but I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to take you through that philosophical set of moves here today um, because I want to talk more about the issue of guilt um, and the idea of guilt um, and the paper has uh, three sections from that point of view. The first section uh, goes back to some work I've done already relating to uh, Hannah Arendt and Karl Jaspers and that sets the scene for thinking about metaphysical guilt because metaphysical guilt is of course one of Jaspers categories. And then secondly I'm going to move on from that, that that's sowed a seed in my mind relating to um, the question of survivor guilt and that took me, in, took me back to thinking about Primo Levi and his work um, The Drowned and the Saved and then the third part um, is, uh, I'm th uh, is thinking, extricating myself from some, some problems that come from thinking through in this way where I talk about perpetrators, collaborators and bystanders following Levy and trying to explain what I think the issue in Levy is. So that's, that's the three parts of the talk. Um, so let me begin by setting the scene. The first part sets the scene. Um, and it sets the scene by um, looking at uh, the debate between Karl Jaspers and Hannah Arendt after the war, but which were then renewed for Arendt in her work Eichmann in Jerusalem um, in the early 60s. Jasper had written a book on German war guilt after the war and Arendt had responded that 
that Germany, and his philosophy in fact, was saddled with a real problem. She wrote to him once she'd read the book saying that there were tens or hundreds of thousands of people who could not be adequately punished for their crimes. And the problem was not just one of numbers or scale, but it was the widespread and systematic structured abandonment (coughs) of its moral compass by whole swathes of a people. What had been done was carried out systematically by those civilized barbarians who had no sense of the wrongness of their actions, despite their enormity. That problem was focused later on in her consideration of Eichmann at the Eichmann trial, and she argued that Eichmann could be executed, but he could not be executed on the basis of the normal moral understanding of wrongdoing, which his punishment would communicate to him and his kind. Eichmann was incapable of such communication because he could not see that he had done wrong. He thought indeed that he had done his duty, that he he had acted according to Kant. Punishment would therefore lack the, the normal moral quality that was expected of it. It wasn't possible for a moral dialogue with such a person. Now that argument from Arendt set me thinking. Um, It seemed both logically persuasive but also morally counterintuitive. It makes sense in terms of the need to address Eichmann as a responsible moral agent but it leads to the conclusion that the worse someone like him behaved the less justice could make its claims upon him. In opposition to this I in fact pursued Jasper's position when he distinguished four different kinds of guilt, political, legal, moral, and metaphysical. But I noted the problematic quality of this typology at the same time. Political guilt for Jaspers was what he called an external form of guilt, involving, for example, reparations imposed on a people as a whole by a victorious power, but it lacked any real requirement of, it it, it lacked any, it was regardless of actual wrongdoing. Legal guilt, again an external form, was imposed on individuals where a crime was formally identified and where a formally free act had taken place. Neither of these forms of guilt addressed, however, the moral dialogue that a process of criminal justice is normally thought to involve. Unfortunately, neither did moral guilt, because moral guilt was an internal form of guilt, but in Jasper's account, it was not appropriate for engagement in a public trial process. Instead, it involved a moral agent's private engagement with himself and with close family and friends. In any case, it was self-evident that the accused in the trials of the Nazis felt no such guilt. That did, however, leave the fourth form of guilt, metaphysical guilt, and this intrigued me. What did uh, I was initially not, not not attracted to it, but as time went on, I thought I wanted I wanted to pursue this idea. What did Jaspers mean by this first by this fourth category? In the quotation on the screen, should have got the right one. Yeah. <laughs> I, once, I gave this talk once in um, in Colombia. And this, the, I was talking in English, it was being translated, and my quotations were on the screen in Spanish, and they were phased one behind the, the one I was actually talking to. I worked that out eventually and was able to correct it. 
So in this quotation, the mundane purposes of morality are contrasted with the more transcendental quality of metaphysical guilt, which involves an absolute solidarity or unity with other human beings, one which goes beyond a morally, morally meaningful sense of duty. This importantly taps into the idea of survivor guilt, as you can see, as you can see uh, about... Um, in this quote, maybe it's in the next one. Let's look at the quote. Morality is always influenced by mundane purposes. Metaphysical guilt is the lack of absolute solidarity with the human being as such, an indelible claim beyond morally meaningful duty. This solidarity is violated by my presence at a wrong or a crime. It's not enough that I cautiously risk my life to prevent it. If it happens, and if I was there, and if I survive where the other is killed, survivor guilt, I know from a voice within myself I am guilty of being still alive. In the following, in this passage, this sense of absolute solidarity as an unconditional obligation to every other is articulated as on the screen. Somewhere among men the unconditional prevails, the capacity to live only together or not at all. Therein consists the substance of their being but that this does not extend to the solidarity of all men, but remains confined to the closest of human ties, therein lies this guilt of us all. In considering what Jaspers is saying here, I think we can identify five different meanings of survivor guilt, sorry, of metaphysical guilt. These are first, the lack of absolute solidarity with the human being as such, and second, and closely connected, to identify but not live by the unconditioned in human relations. These fundamental metaphysical or transcendental elements represent the basis by way of negative contrast for a third meaning, to live in history and politics. In such a state one does not live by the unconditional alone. A fourth meaning, closely linked to the third, is to live in relations of power given to one. Finally, a fifth meaning links to survivor guilt, to live after a crime, to survive it. In terms of the debate between Arendt and Jaspers, the value of this conception was that in a world where the worst perpetrators felt no guilt and felt, indeed felt vindicated in what they had done, here was a conception of guilt that could operate beyond the need for actual acceptance of or capacity for moral dialogue between perpetrators and those judging them. Of course, Jaspers was speaking at the highest level of abstraction, and he was not speaking of the guilt of those who were perpetrators, but of those who were either onlookers or survivors. Nonetheless, the conception of guilt here, I thought, was generalizable, and it was non-actualist, and related to a deeper set, i.e. there wasn't need for an actual sense of guilt in a person, and it related to a deeper set of claims about universality and humanity, and what huma humans owe to each other, regardless of whether this was accepted in an agent's particular understanding or acceptance of responsibility. My argument, therefore, was that one could take this formulation which Jaspers deployed to speak of universal guilt of the survivor, the bystander, and the collective group, and turn it on to the perpetrators themselves. Metaphysical guilt, operating a at a different level, was complexly related to but in some way operated to underpin the other forms of guilt in the political, legal and moral spheres. In providing it with a fuller role in relation to Jasper's typology, it was possible to see the limitation of Arendt's criticism of guilt attribution in the case of the perpetrators of crimes against humanity. 
So that was the argument that I started with. And then I started thinking, I, I, was, I, I am trying to think through what it means to have a metaphysical position of this kind. And this is the, the sort of the move that took me back to thinking about Primo Levi. So what, the, the thing that worried me about this was that... Um, was to think about um, how defensible this idea of metaphysical guilt would, would be or would be seen to be. It seemed on reflection to be vulnerable to criticism. Jaspers himself had worried that his conception would be too abstract and would be seen as simply the crazy idea of a philosopher, as he put it. His own personal background was in Christian pietist philosophy, and it might be thought that the idea of metaphysical guilt reflects too much his Christian worldview. The further meaning he had given to metaphysical guilt involved the common guilt of mankind, by which he meant original sin, an idea I wouldn't be particularly comfortable with. The resolution of such guilt was to be sought by living in relation with God, again an idea I wouldn't be particularly comfortable with, and reflecting on the way to humble self-purification. <laughs> Is it only from a religious point of view that metaphysical guilt appears valid? And if so, what persuasive power does it have for those who do not share it? In reaching into this domain is one in danger of basing one's thought on a terrain that academics, legal and otherwise, will find hard to accept. We may be happy to strike a further blow against the positivist unconscious that dominates much academic work, but are we reaching for a somewhat local universal in pressing Jaspers into service? So, right, so um, that then took me, so one way of reflecting on, on that concern in relation to the position I'd developed was to pose a more concrete question. Um, and that's where the next part of the, the talk goes. It will be recalled that the fifth meaning of metaphysical guilt involved the person who survives a crime. It was with, it is with regard to that meaning that I wanted to pursue my concern now the question for me was, is a conception like survivor guilt no more than a fancy name for psychological trauma, or does it deserve a different kind of understanding as a form of metaphysical guilt? In other words, I'd really been kind of taken, I'd kind of been taken by that more, I mean, survivor guilt is, is a thing that either exists or it doesn't <coughs> exist in the world. You know, we are familiar with the notion of survivor guilt. And so it seemed to be the place where Jaspers, Jaspers is typology on the metaphysical side touched base with something that we could identify concretely as having an existence in the world so I found myself thinking through that relationship next and, and taking me into thinking about survivor guilt so I began thinking about survivor guilt and I went first of all to a psychoanalytical discussion of it and then I went to Primo Levi who has a metaphysical discussion of it so starting with, with, um, with the, the psychoanalytical, um, and here I drew on a book by a woman called Ruth Lees called From Guilt to Shame, Auschwitz and After. Survivor guilt is a controversial topic in the psychoanalytical understanding of traumatization. Um, a, helpful, uh, a, hel a helpful work on it that I, I've used, as I've said, is Ruth Lee's work on, and it's a work on guilt and shame, which analyzes the psychoanalytical debate on survivor guilt. Uh, and she draws on Levy to do so. So there's a link between her and Levy that I think about. Lee's book is a powerful analysis of, of evolving directions in the psychiatric analysis, 
analysis of trauma and the use of the concept of survivor guilt in the treatment of trauma disorders. Her argument is that conceptions have sh of shame have over the last 30 years tended to supplant conceptions of guilt and this has meant ultimately a move to seeing trauma in terms of as it were an external psychological assault on the victim from the outside. In the approach associated with guilt on the other hand the analysis of traumatic disorder involves a sense of the potential for taking an, an internal view of the psychology of the victim and that may involve, and this is where we get into survivor guilt, a process of mimesis or imitation and identification with the perpetrator of the violence. It is this mimesis under the requirement to survive that leads ultimately to the sense of guilt that we call survivor guilt and which lies at the root of the way some victims at least experience <coughs> their traumatic situation. So here's a, a quotation from Lees. Um, the concept of survivor guilt had been theorised within the terms of psychoanalytic ideas about the relationship, the imitative or identificatory relationship between the victim and the aggressor. The claim was that one characteristic, indeed primordial mode of defence against violence, was for the victim to save herself by giving in to power and identifying with the threatening other. Such identification then led, in due course, to feelings of guilt, especially in the aftermath, as the victim reflected, consciously or unconsciously, on their thought processes and how they had identified with the perpetrator in the time when they had survived but others had perished. According to Lees, the sense of trauma as survivor guilt draws in some draws in something draws on something of this classical classical psychoanalytic understanding. Now as I said the significance of this claim has in recent times been contested in favour of a shame based approach, but it's not my purpose to enter into the internal debate between psychiatrists and psychoanalysts or between Freudians, post Freudians and anti Freudians. Lee's analysis, which is sympathetic to the classical approach, is Whatever the, however that debate works out, helpful in positing a material psychological mechanism that can underpin the idea of survivor guilt. There is something we could identify as survivor guilt out there. The question for me, me now is whether it can help us in understanding the role of metaphysical guilt as deployed by Jaspers. Can we then develop that idea beyond the religious basis that, that might otherwise be our only way of understanding what he has to say. So, that's, so that then takes me into uh, takes me to Primo Levi's book, which, as I've said, Lees talks about, but she talks about it in a particular way. If we if we go to the book, The Drowned and the Saved, we find an analysis there that substantially supports her argument about survivor guilt, but also takes us further towards an ethical, metaphysical conception. In the camp, Levy writes, power was sought, amongst others, quote, by the many, who, by, by the many among the oppressed who were contaminated, contaminated by the oppressors and unconsciously strove to identify with them. Levy describes, and he uses the word mimesis, as the identification or imitation or exchange of roles between oppressor and victim. 
He did warn, however, that this idea has provoked much discussion, and he continued that much of it has proved highly problematic, and that's, that will be the third section of my talk. We'll come to the difficulties on that later, but for now, we should note the metaphysical salience of the mechanism of, me of mimesis for Levy. Whilst there's a connection, there's also an important difference. And the difference involves the different moral register in which Levy thinks. For him, what was at stake was not simply a psychological trauma-inducing mechanism, though that was a part. Beyond it was an ethical wrongdoing that had, been that had been done that went to the heart of what it meant to be human. His comment that he his comment that he, quote, and this is a quote, does not believe that psychoanalysts are competent to explain this impulse, emphasizes the difference in standpoints. Psychoanalytical knowledge had not been developed predominantly in the camp. And even where it was, the analysis seems, and this is a quote again, approximate and simplified, as if someone wished to apply the theorems of plane geometry to the solution of spheric triangles. In seeking the correct ethical register, Levy observes that everyone in the camp suffered from an unceasing discomfort that polluted sleep and was nameless. To define this as a neurosis is reductive and ridiculous. Again, a quote. He says it would be more correct to see in it an atavistic anguish, that of a deserted and empty universe crushed under the spirit of God but from which the spirit of man is absent, not yet born or, or already extinguished. He talks about the spirit of God, but elsewhere in the, in the Drowned and the Saved, he makes it clear that he went into the camp an atheist and he left the camp an atheist too. Earlier in the book, he had written in the case of those who had collaborated of the death of the soul, which yields and breaks under pressure, and of being made to live at an animal level in which our moral yardstick has changed. As hybrids moulded from clay and spirit, it is the spiritual side of humankind that needs to be attended to in thinking about survivor guilt. And here the psychoanalyst can't help us. To return to normal life from the mental states imposed in the camps was not just to experience and work through psychological trauma, it was to experience and live with a sense of ethical abandonment that went to the very heart of what it meant to be human and to possess a human spirit. Many of the precise comments made by Levy take these observations and give them a transcendental or metaphysical frame, as in this quotation here. What he says here on the quote on, on the screen is that he talks about the general capacity of humankind to turn the world into one of sheer pain and the impact of knowledge of this on those who observed it. The just among us felt remorse, shame and pain for the misdeeds that others and not they had committed and in which they felt involved because they sensed that what had happened around them in their presence and in them was irrevocable. It would never again be able to be cleansed. It would prove that man, the human species, we in short, were potentially able to construct an infinite enormity of pain. More concretely, there is the failure to offer solidarity with a human being who is your companion, whom you fail to help. And this is the nub of survivor guilt. 
Almost everybody feels guilty of having omitted to offer help. The presence at your side of a companion who is weaker or less cunning or older or too young, hounding you with his demands for help or with his simply being there, the demand for solidarity, for a human word, advice, even only a listening ear was permanent and universal but rarely satisfied. And finally, again on the guilt of the survivor, or perhaps just the guilt of the observer alongside the survivor who now knows that humankind and therefore the individual, him or herself, may be capable of such things. In this passage, Levy points to specific failures to act, but it seems that not acting or not acting adequately is a further issue to the simple guilt of the existence of a crime. Here he speaks of the shame which the just man experiences when confronted by a crime committed by another, and he feels remorse because of its existence, because of its having been irrevocably introduced into the world of existing things, and because his will has proven non-existent or feeble and was incapable of putting up a good defence. Now, however one reads these comments, it seems that they occupy similar territory to Jasper's account of metaphysical guilt. An understanding of this deep layer of human being or experience is central to the nature of the judgment of guilt. On Levy's account, survivor guilt operates as living proof in the extreme or limit case of the significance of Jasper's account. We have moved here beyond the understanding of guilt as a material me mental mechanism underlying traumatization, though what we have is a deepening of the understanding of such things rather than simply an alternative mode of explanation. The metaphysical indeed builds on the existence of the mental, but it is important to see it is acknowledged by the testimony of the survivors as a sentiment generated by the camp experience and not just as a metaphysical speculation. Survivor guilt, in other words, in its material, mental and metaphysical senses was ingredient in the structure of the event in the world. And that was really the point, I suppose, that I wanted to labour in pushing forward that metaphysical issue in relation to um, uh, Jaspers, that it wasn't that you could that you could be a metaphysician without being a theologian. <coughs> that then moves me on to the third section because uh, you know, the, the paper is running with two things at the same time, and the other thing it's running with is the kind of the question of well, how does guilt fall out, given that we have this kind of understanding of the setting, the metaphysical setting of guilt. And here I'm going to pick up a, an issue that, that um, um, Levy was keen to discuss, um, both in terms of making a separation, make, making an important separation, um, but also in terms, I think, of, of identifying a problem that, that remains, I think, unanswered by him. Uh, so let's, let's move on to the final section then. So let me just reiterate what I've said. We've seen that survivor guilt can operate to indicate a deep sense of metaphysical guilt in the human condition. And the argument has been that this conception can, op can operate to ground a, Jas a Jaspersian response to an Arendtian question. But I noted above that we move here between two forms of actual worldly guilt, that of the camp survivor, the victim, 
and that of the war criminal, the perpetrator. And these are two very different people. As we noted above, Levy was both drawn to the theory of imitation or mimesis, to which he gave the ethical turn, and also concerned that it led to serious misunderstanding about the nature of guilt in the camp. And we need to explore that point. The problem with survivor guilt is that it can lead to the conclusion that all are complicit in guilt. And this can erase the important distinctions between different kinds of guilt. It is clear that people, perpetrators and victims are not guilty in the same way or for the same things and some are perhaps not guilty at all. Here Levy wanted to hold on to a sense of the universal guilt we share for the existence of the camp while being clear about the distinctions we need to draw to identify the guilt of different classes of agents. These included those in the grey zone of collaboration that existed between the victim and the perpetrator. And that's the unresolved thing, I think. He adopts a subtle and nuanced line which both acknowledges who the real perpetrators are and assigns a degree of responsibility, or refuses to do so, to those who collaborated. But all this against the horizon of a general sense of universal responsibility. With regard to collaborators, Levy cited the case of Rumkowski, the chief elder of the Jews of Łódź in Poland. He writes of Rumkowski's distorted view of the world, his dogmatic arrogance, his clinging to power, his contempt for law. The man had been drugged by the power given him by the Nazis. But Nevi notes, Levy notes, this, quote, does not exonerate him from his responsibilities. His own life was tragic. And though there were extenuating circumstances, and I quote again, no tribunal would have absolved him, nor certainly can we absolve him in the mor on the moral plane. Rumkowski ended up in, the, in Auschwitz himself, so there was never a tribunal. But there's a question of judgment. And, and Levy's just said, nor certainly can we absolve Rumkowski in the moral plane. Yet, Levy also describes this as, as a case of judicial impotence, impotentia judicandi. He says, are many of us not just like Rumkowski? We are all mirrored in Rumkowski. His ambiguity is ours. It is our second nature. We hybrids moulded from clay and spirit. That quote again. Sorry, I've repeated the quote. He didn't write it twice. His fever is ours, the fever of our Western civilization that descends into hell with trumpets and drums. And its miserable adornments are the distorting images of our symbols of social prestige. Levy continues that, like Rumkowski, we are all dazzled by power and prestige so that we forget our essential fragility. We all come to terms with power, quote, forgetting that we're all in the ghetto, that the ghetto is walled in, that outside the ghetto reign the lords of death, and that close by the train is waiting. Yet despite this impotence in judging in the grey zone, Rumkowski stands as one who deserves to be held responsible. There were, however, others in that zone, others who worked the system and should not be held accountable. Some were ready to compromise, and as grey, ambiguous persons, 
they are the rightful owners of a, qu a quota of guilt. But others, for example the crematorium ravens, those who worked in the special squads in the crematoria in order to preserve their own lives for a few weeks, no one is authorised to judge them. And, and Levy says, a judgment of them should be suspended. And here the language is, in, is important, I think, since a judgment suspended is nonetheless a judgment made, but not a judgment carried out. This again is in Potentia Eudicandi, yet with a different outcome to that in the case of Rumkowski. None of this, it should be said, counts against the full responsibility of the perpetrators, the men and women who ran the death camps. As Levy says, it is crucial not to conflate perpetrators and victims, and a sense of the universality of the human condition should not undermine this distinction. As Levy says, I do not know whether in my depths there lurks a murderer, but I do know that I was a guiltless victim and I was not a murderer. Confusing the two roles means wanting to becloud our need for justice. And yet it is, it is just having said that, that he went on to say that he needed to make a few more remarks. And those remarks were about the grey ambiguous people, the crematorium ravens, those who cooperated in running the system, but also perhaps himself, who did not do enough, who failed to offer solidarity, who continued to live while a crime was committed, who witnessed the system, systemic rendering of the world as one of pain. There remains a commonality of guilt, but there are also victims, perpetrators and collaborators. I'm coming to them now. Having read Primo Levi many years ago, I was drawn back to him by his thought on survivor guilt. How do we understand it? What does it tell us about guilt in general? How does it connect with Jasper's account of metaphysical guilt? What we find in Levy is a subtle and nuanced series of judgments about guilt in the concentration camp, in which perpetrators remain perpetrators and victims victims, but between the two there stands a grey zone in which the two sides, while remaining apart, also blur together. To be a complicit victim is not the same as a perpetrator, but it is to participate in a way that can lead to an attribution of responsibility, or perhaps not. It may be a question of suspending a judgment, or recognising a quotient of guilt, or both, or neither. There's no question of denying key distinctions, but there are still questions to be addressed which run up against those distinctions. The figure of Romkowski, or the crematorium ravens, focuses the issue, but it also goes deeper into our sense of what it means to be human. And this is where the idea of metaphysical guilt emerges. What are the vulnerabilities we share and what do we owe to each other in terms of fundamental questions about solidarity and our moral being? The question of the right to live in the place of another and what we may do or should do or owe to the other require an understanding of what it is that is universal in the human condition the things we fundamentally share as human beings. These questions can't be answered as a matter simply of psychological mechanism. They require an understanding of the deep ethics at the core of our being. It is that deep ethics that is brought out by confronting Arendt's vision of Eichmann, Jasper's account of metaphysical guilt, 
and Levy's experience and nuanced judgment of the camp. Thank you.